Thank you so much. You can be seated. My name is Daniel. I get the opportunity of being lead pastor here at Journey and teaching God's word uh, today. If it is your very first time, we would uh, love to connect with you even more intentionally. You can uh, fill out that green card in the seat back in front of you uh, and take it to the welcome desk or go to jcsignup.com and, uh, and sign up there. This is week two of a series that we're calling The Spirit in Acts. We're looking specifically at the book of Acts, but at how the Spirit moved and worked then. Because we started with this premise statement last week that the way that the Spirit began to move in the early church is, is very similar to how He works today. So if you have a copy of God's Word, uh, meet me in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Last week we looked at the person of the Spirit, uh, that the Holy Spirit is in fact the third person of the Trinity, not a, a force like Star Wars, but uh, a personal uh, a being, that He is God with us, God in us, God working through us. And, and this week we're going to begin to look at how the Holy Spirit Works. So last week was the person, this week is we begin to look at how he works. So if you have a copy of God's Word, Acts 2, uh, it's a big chapter and we're going to cover actually the entire thing. So it'll be really helpful this morning if you have an open Bible in your lap like most of you normally do or a, a digital Bible that you can scroll along with me as we uh, highlight this chapter in Acts 2. But as we get ready to uh, start this morning, I want to start with a, an imaginary survey. So I wanted you to imagine that you, you came in with and I, you got a small slip of paper a small slip of paper with one prompt uh, that you were instructed to write down uh, based on this slip of paper and the prompt was what is the problem with the world and you just got this small piece of paper to address what is the problem with the world or maybe it's like, okay, I can't really deal with that right now, but okay, we could, we could adjust the prompt slightly and say, what's the problem in your world? What's the problem in your world? And you begin to think about issues you're dealing with relationally or financially or vocationally in your job and you're thinking about all these different things and we begin to have an open mic and I had a big fishbowl up here with everybody's answers and I went one at a time and we'd call on somebody like hey this is the problem that I got in my world or this is the problem with the world and we begin to have a dialogue around the, the causes of these problems and the, the root issue with these problems and we would probably have a good lengthy discussion and the conversation would probably take many turns and go many different directions and we would probably get a lot of nothing done, but we would have a lot of good ideas how to solve the problems in our own lives and ultimately the problems in the world at large. In 1910, the London Times actually put out this, this thesis and desired for other writers to write in. The thesis was, what is the problem with the world? And famous Christian philosopher and Christian writer G.K. Chesterton actually responded to this post with one simple sentence. And he said, sirs, I am. I am the problem with the world. And G.K. Chesterton, he had this understanding of what the Christian life actually tells us is the problem with the world is actually us, our sinfulness, that we are the biggest problem not only in the world, but also in our world. So that also tells us if Christianity is true, the number one thing that we must see change in our life, if we want change at all, is us. And this morning with that in mind, 
The big question is, is, well, how is God desiring to change us in our lives, in our story? The quick answer is, well, obviously, he's going to change us. His grace, his Holy Spirit working in our life. And you would be right. But Acts 2 shows us how the Spirit begins to start that work. I'm going to grab one verse from Acts 1 that we looked at last week to prompt us in this regard where Jesus tells us in Acts 1-4, he's, he's uh, with his disciples and he says this, and while he was with them and while staying with them, he ordered them, do not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. That the disciples in the early church, that they were just simply instructed that most theologians believe that the place where they probably gathered up and waited was the, where they also took the Last Supper, their, their Jerusalem in the upper room, that they probably just gathered up and, and just waited. They did what Jesus ordered them to do. They just gathered up and, and waited. Wait for what? Wait for who? Wait for how long? They're like, I don't know. We just wait. Just, just wait. Like Christmas without a calendar. You're like just waiting. You don't know when it's going to hit, but we're waiting. And then you get to Acts 2 and you turn the page in your scripture or just maybe look over in Acts 2, 1, it says this. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, that, that, that word Pentecost or, you know, depending on your accent, Pentecost, or what, however you want to say that word, it simply means 50th, 50th day after the resurrection of Christ. And we celebrate it today still in the Christian calendar that after that day had arrived, it says this. They were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like rushing mighty, a mighty rushing wind that filled the entire house where they were sitting. The scene that they're gathered up in this upper room, this small little room, that all the disciples are there. It's 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus and he's gone to be with the father, but this mighty rushing wind shows up. And it fills the room where they're gathered together and the spirit falls. Last week, and we talked about that the Holy Spirit is God with us, in us, working through us. And as we begin to digest how the spirit came in full presence, we have to understand some general principles about the spirit and how he works, that there is what theologically is called the omnipresence of the Holy Spirit or God everywhere. That David writes in Psalm 139 that there is nowhere I can go to escape your presence. 100% accurate. There's nowhere we can go to escape his presence. There's also another idea of the Holy Spirit's presence called the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. That he is God in us. We, we talked about that last week, but actually in two weeks, we're going to really dive into what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? What does it mean that the Spirit indwells our life? But really this week is anchored in on what theologians call the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit or where God makes himself known to us in a special way. And mainly in scripture, you see this happening when there is a group of like-minded believers centered with a singular heartbeat, headed toward a singular mission, and that God reveals himself in a special way. In the book of Acts, and here in Acts chapter two, it says they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
50 days after Jesus resurrects from the dead, here he is. He shows up like a mighty rushing wind. And then Luke goes on to tell us in verses 3 and 4 that there's like divided tongues of fire that come and rest upon the apostles. What the heck is that about? Like, I'm mean, just going just to just confess right there in front of you. Like, what is going on here? I don't know if any of you ever watched the, the Bible Project. It's these animated videos of, about uh, scripture that kind of help you wrap your mind around it a little bit. And, and they have these like just these little candle wicks on top of the apostles' heads. It's like, this is the best. It's, it's like a mighty rushing wind. It's like fire of tongues divided up and it's just on top of them. Like, what? But the apostle Louis, he's just doing as best he can to describe this event that's, that's taken place. And he tells us that when the spirit of flaming tongues rests on the disciples, that they begin to speak as the Holy Spirit gave each of them words. By the power of the Spirit, they begin to produce language that they didn't know, that, that it was different for them. They didn't understand what was happening, but the Spirit was working through them in that way. And then in verse 5, Luke tells us that there's this contextual scene that's gathered outside the room where they're at. That actually in the city where they're positioned, there's a bunch of other Jews from all these different nations that have gathered up. You may have the question like, why did they gather up? Well, there's these key Jewish festivals that are celebrated in the Old Testament calendar and most likely they're between festivals. And if they had come from all these different nations from all over the known world, they probably didn't travel, turn around and travel back home and then walk another, however far they did. So they most likely just stayed over in the city with family members or friends that they had occurred and they were waiting to celebrate the next festival. It was a few days, a few more days and then next festival was gonna start that they were gonna celebrate. For some Jewish uh, people, it may have been a once in a lifetime trip that they had finally gotten to take or some it may have been a yearly occurrence others they maybe did it every a couple of years as a family but it was something special that they they did they came to celebrate this festival in the holy city where the temple was like this was special for them and they were gathered up here they are they, they're all these different nations and they're gathered in verse five and luke tells us and then in verse six, he says that at this gathering, Peter stands up to preach. Peter stands up to preach what most theologians would call the, the first Christian sermon. And, and what do we mean by the first Christian sermon? Well, post-resurrection, not delivered by Jesus, Peter stands up to, to preach in front of these individuals to tell them about what Jesus had accomplished. Until then, talking about Jesus was about what he would, would come to do. Now he's came to do it. He did it. He did the thing. He lived a perfect life, died a death in the place of all mankind for whoever would look upon him in faith and repentance from their sins and trusted him, they would have life and life to the full. And he died that death and he didn't stay dead, but he rose back and stayed with his disciples and taught them some more. And then he ascended back into heaven, never to die again. He sat down at the right hand of the Father, completed his finished work, and Peter stands up to teach about this. And he takes this Old Testament passage from the book of Joel, specifically, if you're there in your Bible, we're gonna buzz down to verse 16. 
He takes this Old Testament passage from the book of Joel, this minor prophet, where Joel is calling the people in the Old Testament to, to repent or to turn away from their sins and back to the Lord. To turn to the Lord because they have lived in sin but if they will turn to the Lord in repentance and in faith, that not only would he re- restore them, but he would actually come to reside among them. That's what Joel is teaching his people. He's prophesying to his people. He's, he's foretelling. He's telling about the, the future of what would happen if the people of God would turn from their sins, trust in him, and really wholeheartedly go after him. And this is what Peter does. Verse 16. But this is what is uttered through the prophet Joel. And in your last days, it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall see dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Joel most likely in the Old Testament times believed that the Spirit of God or God residing with his people was going to be primarily kept to the nation of Israel. But the rest of the book of Acts is unfolding this promise that God is going to come and pour out his Spirit and be with his people. And the way that it unfolds that it doesn't reside to just one specific ethnic group or skin color, but God desires to be with all people, that the book and the story at the very end of the scriptures and revelations is a story of God with all nations gathered around his throne to worship him. But what I want you to see in this, in Peter picking up on Joel's prophecy, is God declares that he would pour out his spirit on all flesh. It wasn't reserved to one individual type of person, One qualified individual, like in the Old Testament, it had been with just the the key leaders of the kings, the priests, and the prophets. But now it is expanded that God's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh, that all would have his presence with them, working in them, working through them. If you're taking notes, you can write this down, that the spirit works to create the community of believers, That it's not this this community with one key leader like the king or the priest or the prophet. Like it's creating this community where they all have the spirit of God working in their life, poured out on their life, working through their life. That it's not reserved for this certain, certain type of individual, but God is moving to be with the people. See, the Spirit is poured out. The Spirit is present. The Spirit is active and working in this community. Now, a slight rabbit trail. Some of you probably, after reading those few verses that you maybe have read them before, but reading them in this way that, okay, what does it mean that this prophecy to be fulfilled from the Old Testament prophet that all your sons and daughters will prophesy? And then he says it again in verse uh, at the end of verse 18 that, and they shall prophesy. Like what in the world is Peter picking up on this from Joel? What is he talking about? 
That's a helpful question. I really think it's helpful to understand this in context. I'm going to try to boil this down just to three things on this rabbit trail. And I'm addressing the fact that it is a rabbit trail. The first is we have to understand what the word prophecy means in the scriptures from beginning to end. That there's three meanings of this one simple word, prophesy. The, the first word, the first meaning could be very simply just to proclaim something that has been revealed, to tell of something that's been revealed. The second meaning should be, uh, could mean to reveal something that's been hidden or cloudy, to make what's cloudy clear. That's an easy way to think about it. Or the third way is to foretell about something that is going to happen in the future. And in Peter picking up on this, using it in Acts 2, most likely he's not meaning the third meaning of this word, which would be to foretell. Like for most of me, for me, I think of, of people who are fortune tellers. They're telling a prophecy about something that will happen in the future. And Old Testament prophets, they primarily prophesied in this way. They were telling about the coming Savior. They were pointing to the one who would come to rescue. But the way that Peter uses this word in this context that says all sons and daughters will prophesy is probably just simply mean to make what has been cloudy clear. Which is why the Apostle Paul desires in the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, I wish all of you would desire prophecy. Because what does prophecy mean in the New Testament? Well, the second thing I want you to know. So the first one, sharing the three words. The second is New Testament prophecy sits in a different category, a different category than Old Testament prophecy. First, because they're not prophets speaking on the behalf of God inspired scripture that we have in our Bibles today. And second, that if someone uh, speaks something untrue, we generally don't take them out back and stone them like Deuteronomy instructs false prophets to be done today or then, not today. So third, what in the world is Peter actually talking about and why would it actually be helpful for believers, for all sons and daughters, everyone with the spirit of God to prophesy? I think it, what he's pointing at, which is what Paul picks up on on 1 Corinthians 14, is to share the message of the cross and the message of Jesus that all individuals can help make what's cloudy clear by telling about Christ. Picking up on this idea of encouraging others and pointing them to Jesus. I think simply that's what Peter is picking up on from the Old Testament minor prophet Joel. That all people with the spirit of God living inside them can point to the healer can point to Christ, can point to what has made their life impactfully different because the Holy Spirit is actually, as Peter continues on, working in individuals' lives, evidence that Jesus has finished his work. Look with me in verse 33. Verse 33 of Acts 2. Peter continues on in his sermon and he says this, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured it out on you and yourselves and you are seeing and hearing it. So Jesus and his finished work, the evidence 
or the indicator that he has done his job and it is completed, Peter says the Holy Spirit working in our lives as New Testament believers is evidence that Jesus has actually finished his work. That if you want evidence for Jesus' real life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension and his completed work sitting at the right hand of God the Father right now in this moment, evidence of that is the Holy Spirit working in your life today. That the Holy Spirit is work, is evident of Christ's finished work on the cross. That he did what he set out to do and then he poured out his spirit upon us. And then he works in this context of community. Watch how the Holy Spirit, in the context of the gathering of the disciples, in the gathering of all nations, is going to work in the gathering of the local church body. And we're going to look at five different ways the gathering of the local church body is the the breeding ground for the Holy Spirit to work and change our lives. Verse 37, let's pick up. And now when they heard this, this is the, those listening to Peter's sermon. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So in the beginning of Acts chapter two, when the spirit came in fullness upon the apostles, they were gathered up in the context of community. And then Peter preaches to a gathering of all the nations, all the nations, and they were cut to the heart in the pro proclamation of who Jesus is and what he's came to do. And what was cloudy in their life had become clear. And they were almost confused at this. They were cut to the heart, Peter says, by the opening of God's word and the spirit worked in their life and convicted them. We call this in Christian circles, conviction. And they said, brothers, what are we gonna do with this? What do I do with what I'm now seeing and understanding? So the first thing, if you're taking notes of the way the spirit works in the context of community, is the spirit and community confronts you and I's sinfulness. It confronts our sinfulness. Because if the spirit isn't in the context of community here, the reality is, is we can self-justify all day long when we're all alone by ourselves. We can justify our guilt. We can justify our conviction on our own when it's just me with the Lord. It's like, ah, you know, I'm not actually that big of a deal. I'm thinking about something else. But in the context of community here at the day of Pentecost, when the, those gathered up in the nations are listening to the word preached, and it's working in the context of community because when Peter's talking and the apostles are talking, they're actually hearing it in their own language. The spirit is bridging this gap of even language for the context of community. And since they're in the context of community able to communicate to each other, they say, what shall we do? And Peter guides them closer to Christ. That our community should guide us closer to Christ. And he tells them, turn from your sins. Or use this word, repent. This military term that means go the opposite direction. Turn from your sins, turn to Christ. And his response is, get baptized. Why is baptism Peter's first guttural response rather than most of us today, we would say this, that if somebody on a, on a street corner and we're sharing the gospel with them or maybe in our office, we lead them through what we call the sinner's prayer. 
Well, we'll say like, hey, you need to just tell Jesus with your heart that he's Lord. And I don't think anything's wrong with that. Romans 10, 9 says, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. But for Peter, he says, go public with that faith. Make it real. Go in front. You tell everybody, not just you and Jesus, but you tell everybody that I'm, I'm all in on Jesus. And so today we still practice baptism, a public declaration of your faith to the Lord. Baptism does not save you, but it's a symbolic representation to the world that I belong to Jesus, he belongs with me, and I belong to these people witnessing. You see, because a call to Christ is also a call to Christ's family, a call to the community. It's not just you and Jesus, a lone ranger. You see, a call to faith isn't a call to isolation, but it's a call to community. A call to Christ is a call to join Jesus and join his family or what he calls his body because it confronts our sinfulness. But second, notice it will confront your selfishness. I need community and I need the spirit work in the context of community in my life to confront my sinfulness where I can't see my own blind spots and my own weak points, but I need community in my life to confront my own selfishness. Notice how it works. The response of the early church in verse 42. We love reading this. We read this in every journey group leader training. We read this passage at every uh, journey basics to talk about what our church is about. But look at this passage again, Acts 2, 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. You see, in the context of their community, the response of these individuals was to lean into the community even more. They pressed into the relationships even more. They had Jesus, but they needed Jesus' people as well. Because many of us, the quickest way to spot that we're sinful and selfish is get close with other people. Because we realize how sinful and selfish we actually are and how much we actually need God's grace more and more in our life, the closer we are with other people. Because you realize how they do everything wrong. And it'd be a lot easier if they just did it the way you thought. I know I think that way. I know maybe you think that way as well. That we need community so we can learn how to live outside of ourselves like the early church actually did. It says they devoted themselves to four key things, but then there was a response. They devoted themselves to teaching, to fellowship or getting closer to one another, breaking of bread and prayers. And the response to those simple things, opening God's word, loving on one another, and breaking of bread, which simply could mean eating or it could mean uh, taking of communion of remembering the sacrifice of Christ. Either one is appropriate. And praying together. Those four simple things caused them to look beyond themselves. And the response was they actually sacrificed for others in the community. The response to these four simple things of teaching, time together, time around meals, time in prayer was a response of sacrifice of their own needs and wants that they had. Because the Spirit of God not only worked at that one day, but continued to work in and through their lives. We tend to think the supernatural is complex, complicated, and is like 
something like on Dragon Ball Z or Star Wars that it's like lightning bolts going out of our hands. But rather the supernatural is actually in more of the simple. How simple is it of devoting time together, time around meals, time praying, and time in God's word. And from that, all fell upon all the people. All fell upon everyone. And they began to sacrifice. And they recognized their own need for more of God's grace and to give more of that same grace to other people. And look at what continues to happen. Verse 46. And day by day, attending temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see the spirit working in the context of community to reveal our selfishness and our sinfulness reveals more of our need for God's grace in our life. But it also reveals the need for us to give the same grace we're receiving in our life. You see the Holy Spirit works to draw us closer to Jesus. The Holy Spirit also works to draw us towards his ways and his teachings. But the Holy Spirit also works to draw us towards his people. And what's so beautiful about the simple is the supernatural works in this simple way. Time together, time around God's word, time in prayer, and time eating meals together. And then the spirit will work in the third way to confront you and I's short-sightedness. The short-sightedness of how we can't see the areas of need in our own life. Notice that, that the spirit work to confront the needs of the people in verse 45. In verse 45, it says, then they were buying and selling their possessions to, to give to the needs that other people had. And we all are needy people, that we're not self-sufficient, self-starters, individuals that can just grab our life by the horns and just make it what we want it to be, even though every marketing campaign is basically solved in that mantra. Just take control of your life and you take it back and you become what you want to be. Yeah, we do need to take control of our life, but there are so many areas in our life that you think you're crushing it in, but you're actually just tremendously short-sighted like I am. And you need other followers of Jesus to point out in your life areas of improvement you need. Or how about the, the counter to that? You need other followers of Jesus reminding you of how good he is and how much he has worked in your life. Because you're short-sighted even in your own improvements that the spirit has worked in your life to make you more patient or you more loving. And if you've never experienced another follower of Jesus looking at you and saying, man, Jesus looks good in you, you're missing out on this whole thing altogether. Because when another follower of Jesus looks at you, when you're beating yourself up on a regular basis, I don't know if anyone's hypercritical themselves like I am, but reminds you of how far you have come because of God's work in your, in your life, it's a beautiful thing. But it can also remind you of like, hey, we got more ground to cover. And you need more of that good grace that brought you from here to here. And it's gonna take you from here to there. You need other people in your life reminding you and filling in the gaps of your short-sightedness 
of how good God's grace is and how much more you need it. But also here's one other thing that's not in the text and this is the fourth way the spirit works in the community. But it works in the suffering that we face in life. The spirit works in the context of community because suffering is never meant to be suffered alone. And life will have its hangups and its heartbreaks and its shortcomings. And we'll get punched in the mouth. And we were never intended to live this life alone. I said it once, but I'll say it again in the sermon. A call to Christ is not a call to isolation. A call to Christ is not for you to go out into the the wild blue yonder and you and Jesus like on a Han Solo mission. A call to Christ is also a call to his family. A call to join his body. The Apostle Paul calls it in Romans 6 that we are baptized in a baptism like his, a death like his, into Christ. And what do we call the church? The body of Christ. The church is God's family. It's the body of Christ. And a call to Jesus is a call to community. And the Spirit in Acts chapter 2, we like to primarily think of the Holy Spirit like me and the mouse in my pocket. Like I have the Spirit with me, in me, working through me. But the reality is the way the Holy Spirit worked in the beginning and the way that he has continued to work is actually the Holy Spirit among us, in us, working through us. There is no solo mission. So here's the question. I have three response questions for you. The first question is this, it's the obvious, it's the one that I started last week with. Do you have the Spirit? Do you have the Spirit? Working in your life, have you called upon Christ? Have you, like what Peter instructed, saying, repent, brothers, and be baptized, turned from your sin, and put your faith and trust in Him? Have you done this? Have you turned away from your sin and trusted in Jesus? And I'll add a, a, sub, a symbol in this. I think in the New Testament, New Testament, there's no such thing as an unbaptized Christian. So if you haven't went public with your faith in believer's baptism, I'd love for you to fill out a connection card or come talk to me or at the welcome desk and say, I need to go public with my faith. I need to be baptized. We would love to walk with you through this of going public with your faith, of saying, I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me. I want to belong to these people. The second question, who are you sharing with the Spirit? Who are you sharing the spirit with and what this question means is this is who is someone this week either in your journey group or in your household that you can spot out the short-sightedness in their own life in a positive way to say something to the extent of man Jesus looks good in you I've recognized your faithfulness. I've recognized your patience. I recognize how God's grace is showing up in your life. We like to think about church and even the Bible like a beautiful mirror. Looks at me. It focuses on me. It's a story about how God loves me. But treat this like a window rather this week. 
of how to see the world, how to view other people, their desperate need for God's grace in their life and you as an agent of that same grace to give it. Who can you share the spirit with? Who can you be a blessing to those other people and make what is cloudy clear? Point them to Jesus, point him to his grace. How good he's been in your life, how good he can be in theirs. The third question is this, which is what we'll get into in detail next week. But who's the spirit leading you towards who has never experienced the grace of God? Who's one person in in your circle of influence, in your home, in your school, in your classroom, in your workplace, that the spirit is actually leading you towards The Spirit is always a spirit of mission. The Father sent the Son, the Son sent the Spirit. And Jesus says, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. So with these prayer prompts in mind, these three questions in mind, would you just enter into a prayer posture that you feel comfortable with? And then we're gonna sing in response. And would you take one of these or all three of these and begin to pray through them? Holy Spirit, would you move in this place and work in our lives to cut us to the heart? That Jesus, you came to give us life and life to the full. And that life is experienced in living in step with your spirit. Holy Spirit, would you move us towards other people this week? May, our, may your word be a window at which we see the world and see other people, their desperate need for the grace of God and us as that agent of grace. You work in the context of community. Would you reveal through other people in, in our lives, our selfishness, our sinfulness, our shortcomings, and the need to suffer well alongside others. Jesus, would you work and move in these moments to lead us closer to your heart and lead us closer to other people. In your name we pray, amen.